0: Hi there, listener, and welcome to episode 191 of the Ski Podcast. This is a special episode of the podcast, simply a one-to-one chat with snowboarding pioneer Leslie McKenna. Leslie has been on my list of people to interview for several years, so it was really exciting to be able to ask her about her career. Uh, We discuss her family connection to the Scottish Highlands, her early days on snow, including a season with the Snow Patrol in Jackson Hole, and her transition from skiing to snowboarding. Now, that change took Leslie to three Winter Olympic Games, starting with Salt Lake City in 2002, where she was the first ever snowboarder to represent Team GB. Uh, We discussed what it was like when her cousin, Alan Baxter, became the first Brit to win a snow sports Olympic medal and then have it taken away. And more positively, her feelings when Jenny Jones finally won that elusive medal for Britain. Uh, Leslie was one of the coaches that led the GB Park and Pipe team through two hugely successful cycles of Sochi 2014 and Pyeongchang 2018. She explains her coaching philosophy and her current role with Team GB. Finally, we talk about the values behind her wandering workshops, which she runs in the Cairngorms, and look forward to her new film Thrawn, which will premiere at the Kendall Film Festival. It was such a pleasure to talk with Leslie. She has had a huge influence on the development of snowboarding in the UK, yet many people don't even know her name. So I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I did. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Leslie McKenna to the Ski Podcast. She is a groundbreaking snowboarder in the UK scene, the first UK snowboarder to compete in the Winter Olympics and the first to win a World Cup halfpipe and also coach of the most successful GB park and pipe team uh, ever. And she's a filmmaker and a lot more than that, which we're going to discuss during the course of uh, uh, this little chat. Uh, but hi, Leslie, and welcome to the Ski Podcast. Yeah,
1: good morning. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, Can I, can I just ask, where are you today?
1: I am in Aviemore in the Highlands of Scotland.
0: Okay. Any snow on the mountains?
1: There is, actually. It's been snowing the last few days, just um, to about halfway down the halfway point, Um, due to snow all day today. So, yeah,
0: who knows? Right. Okay. That's good. When you say to halfway down, what kind of altitude would that be then?
1: Oh, maybe about 800 metres, and okay. um, it's been hard to see the mountains the last few days, so I'm not entirely sure how far down, but certainly the snow is not all the way to the car park. It's sitting above the car park. Yeah, we'll see if it's been enough to get a little slide on potentially. I'm going to go check right. it out tomorrow, I think. <laughs>
0: Oh God, how exciting uh, that is. I, I love that. You know, during lockdown, we talked a lot about, you know, uh, skiing and snowboarding uh, in the UK, but to actually live by the slopes is where you need to be to be able to get uh, uh, or live by the mountains to be able to get the most out of it. And I guess, you know, you're living in Aviemore now. I thought what would be good would be just to have a chat about your, uh, you know, your career and move on to what you're doing now. But I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of start off. I mean, your family are from that area, right?
1: My mum and dad moved here in their 20s. They're not from, um, they're not, their parents weren't born up in the Highlands. My dad's from Glasgow originally, my mum's from Dundee. So I was born in Inverness. Yeah, we're not quite locals in the grand scheme of things. There's families Uh, whose ancestors have been here for hundreds of years who still live here.
0: But they are both ski instructors, right?
1: Um, They both ski instructed at different points. So my mum was actually a PE teacher. Um, My dad was originally a um, chimney sweep and window cleaner in Glasgow, but he... He had a great mentor and his boss actually took him climbing. So he was originally a climber and climbed in Glencoe and learned to ski through climbing and then moved up here and um, ran the ski patrol, first of all, and then became a busy trainer eventually um, before he eventually moved into to um, land management and was the head ranger of Rothamarkese State. So he's he's got a really interesting life path and my mum went back to teaching PE eventually.
0: Right I mean there are probably not many people who can uh, say they had that career path where they moved on from being a chimney sweep to a ski instructor. <laughs> there you go right. The, the link to snow goes back further than that though because you your grandfather did a lot of skiing he's one of the original kind of pioneers maybe before there are even lifts.
1: Yeah so my my granddad um, who grew up in Dundee he was a, an engineer for Timex and through his work he ended up in Canada and um, so Timex had a big factory in Canada and my granddad ended up working over there and when he came back from Canada he brought skis back with him um, and that would have been in the late 50s so they used to come up every weekend my, my gran and my granddad and my mum and Ian Baxter Alan Baxter's dad um, camp literally stay in tents at Glenmore Lodge and walk up the mountain to go skiing or wherever there was snow they they have been all over the place and the lovely thing about my granddad was he filmed it all he was a real um, film enthusiast and loads of of their experiences are captured on Super 8 film which is just magical and um, my granddad being a fine parts engineer he was meticulous at the filmmaking side as well and not only did he film it he cut it and edited it to music it's just amazing so we've got lots of memories captured of those first first uh, ski experiences
0: that's great to hear but for, for several reasons really kind of interesting because Uh, my uh, mother lived in Scotland uh, when she was younger and she was also skiing in the late 50s uh, in the kind of uh, Ben Laws on Ben Laws primarily Mm. because she lived in uh, Killin, although they went to uh, Aviemore as well. So they were walking up. There were no lifts and still are no lifts in in Ben Laws. And in fact, have a trip planned for later in the year. Uh, Hopefully the snow will stay there to uh, be able to go and kind of explore that and go down memory lane a little bit. I'm interested in a couple of things you uh, mentioned there. Firstly, you said that uh, you know your grandfather uh, created all this cine footage, and not only did he do that, he edited it. Which I can't imagine how difficult that would have been, you know, uh, back in the day. But was this easily accessible? Was it like something that was in a shoebox and you discovered it one day?
1: Um, so when we were growing up, he not only filmed um, skiing, he filmed everything, and he filmed a lot of our family gatherings. You know from um, Easter to Halloween to Christmas, and we we'd have family film shows. So we're always we've seen them all. We've seen those films a lot before. That's what we used to do as a family. We'd get our granddad's cine films, and he'd put on film shows for the whole family. He used to show War, Warren Miller films as well back in the day, in the the I guess the late sixties, early seventies, and all the different venues around the Spay Valley. So he was a real film enthusiast. So we knew, we knew the films were there and, and got to learn about the projectors and the, the reels and how they all worked when we were kids. So that's been part of my life.
0: Oh, well, that's that's very exciting. We're going to come onto that uh, film a little bit later on. But something else that you mentioned there was you mentioned the uh, Baxter family because Alan Baxter and, and Noel Baxter, both uh, skied slalom for uh, um, Team GB, they're your cousins, right?
1: yeah they are indeed
0: so the force runs runs strong in your family as far as uh, snow sports are concerned
1: <laughs> i mean um that the passion that we have for snow sports definitely came originally from my grand and granddad and obviously our parents all were really passionate snow sports enthusiasts but if it weren't for the commitment of my grandparents driving up from dundee to go skiing and to really make it all work then yeah i'm sure we we wouldn't have had that passion
0: well you got that from a from a young age and i think you did uh, like a season in jackson hole is that your kind of first you know uh, experience of bigger resorts
1: (laughs) yeah that's a kind of funny story so um my dad like i said he grew up in glasgow and then got into skiing through climbing and when he set up the ski patrol he employed quite a few of his climbing buddies to come and work on the ski patrol and you know, ski patrolling was a new thing. There weren't any ski patrollers, and my dad really wanted to make it as professional as it could be. And there's definitely a culture in climbing of of looking after people. So, um, he employed two guys. One's called David Agnew, and one's called Callum Mackay, and both exceptionally good climbers. Both who moved to America. David Agnew was a climbing partner of Dougal Haston at one point and um, went to Lausanne to work there at the International School and then went to to the States. And they both settled in Jackson Hole. So when I said that I wanted to do a season after I I took a year out from school, still taking my year out from school, that's a long-running joke, (laughs) um, before I went to university, we didn't have really enough money for me to do it any other way. I had to find somebody to go and stay with. I was only 17 so my dad and back in the day you know you're talking about the early 90s wrote a letter to Callum and Davy and said you know Leslie wants to come and do a season can she come and stay with one of you guys and Callum had a family of um his two sons are about the same age as me so I went to live with Callum Mackay for the season and saw quite a lot of um, David Agnew as well and subsequently you know kept in touch with them they're legends they're absolute legends in Jackson Hole so Callum and David both worked on the ski patrol in Jackson Hole David not at that time he'd moved on David a real pioneer opened up a lot of Teton Pass has loads of first ascents and still in his 80s goes ski touring for hours and you know a hundred days in the season type level of ski touring over there and he lives in in Idaho now, and, and, and just over the border from Jackson Hole. And Callum goes ski touring all the time now too. But staying with Callum meant that I got to go on ski patrol duty every morning. So although I was skiing with the Jackson Hole Ski Club, which was great, so that would have been 1991-92 season. Um, I got to go up on the in the cable car to, you know throw the bomb, or I wasn't throwing the charges, the ski patrol was throwing the charges into Corbett's Cool War and I was uh, like mesmerised at the side.
0: I think that, I mean, what an amazing experience. There's so many people who who'd love to do that. I think people who go out skiing, you you see, or people know what the ski patrol are doing and you can you can hear it going on when there's been fresh snow and hear the blasting but to be up there with them and kind of watching them you know in that case was it uh, you know literally a matter of like lighting a a stick of dynamite and chucking it over the edge
1: yeah so you know the world of ski patrolling these days is so technical and their standards and their knowledge of of risk and how to manage risk is just I'd probably say second to none. Avalanche forecasting and ski patrolling is so advanced. Going back to the early nineties, yeah, it was I think they were still learning a lot. So sometimes, yes, it literally was tying charges together and lobbing it over the side. And um, obviously I was kept well out of the way. Um but still encouraged to learn and encouraged to get myself educated in mountain safety and snow safety, which stood me in really good stead, you know, to have that on your very first season. I'd been to the Alps twice before for two weeks with Cairngorm Ski Club. So I was, really was going from skiing on Kiringorm on a pair of, well, I, had a lot of, I would have been skiing on like 180, really narrow, no side cut skis, having never been in powder, <laughs> into right do you want to you know do you want the first tracks down Corbett's off you go <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool I mean that, that is great and obviously it's one of the iconic resorts and you talk about one of the iconic uh, descents there but you mentioned that you were racing uh, involved in the Jackson Hole uh, race team there how did that segue work from racing there because you're on skis at this point to being involved with the the British team
1: and um, so I spent the whole season racing in Jackson Hole with their ski club that were really well established ski club they were great and they really looked after me and kind of showed me the ropes and there were two coaches at the time or three really that had a big impact on my life Um, Scott Bowdler was one Robbie McLeod who was the university slalom champion and a guy called Tommy Johnson who still works to this day for USSA and in the safety side um, but I crashed in their downhill. They have an iconic downhill in Jackson, and I managed. And again, this is a wild story to think about. Somebody lent me a pair of two twenty four skis, atomics with. Two twenty four. Can I just
0: ask for the benefit uh, of the listener? How tall are you? Just uh,
1: 160 centimeters. Small. Yeah, I mean,
0: I I, I've skied (laughs) on two twenties before, and they like felt just ridiculously uh, tall. But you're like, okay, so you're on your two twenty four. Two twenty four is that
1: somebody had found lying in a shed in the back of Aviemore somewhere. off I go on the downhill and they had to screw the bindings all the way down, obviously, because I'm like, you know, well, at that point, it's probably about 50 kilos. Anyway, the bindings didn't really hold up to it. And my ski fell off halfway down at God knows how fast, just before the camel bumps. And I ended up in the trees, um, which could have been way worse than it. Uh, it was bad enough, but it could have been, you know, fatal. So yeah. lucky in a one sense. But I managed to break some ribs and beat myself up badly enough I had to chill out for a month so Tommy I think he was like oh god this this poor girl from Scotland's ended up in the trees and she's injured and couldn't go home at that time that wasn't a thing you know you just had to stay where you were so I went down to visit him on his ranch while he inoculated all his cows and I looked, helped look after his kids he had two young kids so that was a great time as well I got to see you know a bit about the cowboy life let's say and and really after that injury, I, I've, I kind of decided that I wanted to stick with it. Every time I get injured, I, it really cements my, my belief or my passion or my focus as to whether I want to keep going or change direction. And I think that was the first, uh, God, I was getting ready for school in the background. Here. Yeah. That injury was the first time that, that I'd gone through that process. So I came back from having been on the ranch in the Wind River Mountains and I was like yeah this is I, I want to do this and I went to the first big international race series it was the spring series in um, my bachelor it would have been and then that spring kind of gave me a springboard into what do I do what's the pathway and at the time you know the Scottish ski I was on the Scottish ski team as a selected skier but there were there was no program for the women and um, which is wild also to think about. Now, there, you know, if you were, I think there were three or four of us who'd been selected, but you had to do your own thing a bit. And so, a couple of co- or colleagues, teammates, Sandra Wilson at the time, Sam MacArthur now, and Lucy, listen to Ness, were both going to Breckenridge the next year. So, I went with them, and they were slightly older than me, so kind of took me under their wing. So, I went from Jackson Hole to Breckenridge. And at the end of the Breckenridge season, again, Breckenridge was a great team, really strong ski team, learnt loads, had loads of fun. I got selected onto the British Alpine team. Um, so ended up three seasons on the British Alpine team before I jumped ship to be a snowboarder.
0: Right. Well, that's I'm uh, definitely interested in that. Bit. So were you racing then like Europa Cup or, or something on the on the British Alpine team? Or?
1: Eventually. The last season that I was racing, I was racing Europa Cup, yeah. So mostly slalom and giant slalom the occasional super g i was never trusted in a downhill after after the jackson hole experience i was going to say
0: though that's fascinating it says it says a lot about your personality that actually taking some massive wipeout uh you know uh, potentially uh, dangerous uh crash was what motivated you to decide yeah i want to do more of this <laughs>
1: yeah i've never thought about it that way but yeah
0: so you meant to uh you alluded to it there you know you're, you're skiing you know you're doing pretty well um you know, moving from noram europa cup etc uh but you end up you know segueing into snowboarding and um i think that uh, i'm right in saying uh, i read somewhere that that was almost by accident like literally by accident that you ended up you know snowboarding
1: yeah i mean there were lots of different things that played into that so i think the major thing was um kirsten mcgibbon Got killed. So she was a teammate on the GB Alpine team. And she had a really, really tragic accident in Alton Mart and, and she ended up um, crashing and um, yeah, she passed away. And, and that took a lot of processing, as you can imagine. And um, we came home t- after her accident and we had a couple of weeks in Scotland before we went back out to go to, I think, um, yeah, a few races and then the Europa Cup finals. That was in '96. So in processing or trying to process, come to terms with with that episode, I went snowboarding. And at the time there was very little money in in alpine skiing. I'd been really lucky because Hansen and Robertson Insurance Company had supported my whole alpine career. Um, but still it was so expensive. Um, I was really struggling to see how I could make it work I really wanted to keep going I knew I, I had way more in my tank and then going snowboarding and learning and um, learning to snowboard you know it was in at the deep end thanks Becky Malthouse for, for yeah taking me under under your wing at that time there was a basic course on a snowboard basic course and kind of tagged along with with those guys the snowboard community board wise Simon Smith Justin Westcott Ross Dempster said to me come to the Brits we'll we'll match your ski sponsorship if you will go snowboarding we we don't think you're happy skiing you we see all the work you're putting in you know you would have a better time go snowboarding and I laughed at them and said you know don't be ridiculous and then they phoned me up a few weeks later and said come to the Brits we've got you some gear if you'll jump ship and from Burton that's kind of unheard of um not a bad I,
0: introduction is it say so, oh I, you know come and be a snowboarder and, and Burton will kick you out
1: yeah and you know I'm, I'm playing it down I loved snowboarding I'd kind of fallen in love with it by that point anyway and then at the British Ski Champs and Teen um we had a, a dual slalom it was one of the first dual slalom events and somebody crashed into me in the Finnish area um the finish area wasn't very big not big enough obviously and I think it was James Ormond he took me out and not by you know not his fault at all um, and ended up I had this massive big hematoma on my shin and I ironically couldn't wear my ski boots but could wear my soft snowboard boots and the snowboarding champs were on down the the valley in Mary Bell. so I got a I hitched a lift over to Maribel and didn't look back.
0: Right. I mean, it's so interesting that you mentioned uh, Maribel because I can tell you that I was actually working, it was in Monterey, wasn't it? I was the crystal ski uh, resort manager in Monterey that particular uh, year when uh, I think crystal like hosting they were the tour operator for the Brits and uh, we'd had this big warning about oh all these snowboarders are going to be coming don't let them have their apartments until they've paid their deposits and it's so it amuses me now because it's so um, uh, redolent of that period where there was this huge gulf between snowboarders and skiers you know these days it just seems so strange to think back about it then but I wondered how it was for you coming into that snowboarding community from skiing I know you said all these people said oh yeah you've got to swap over but you know you did well at those first brits and I think you won one of the one of the races uh there did you did you feel any antipathy to the skier coming into this community
1: a hundred percent not so you know grew up in Avimore and we're just one one big community especially on the the snow side and there were you know so many people both skied and snowboarded and um you know I think that was a real big Um, obviously it was a thing in America there were resorts that that banned snowboarders or never allowed them to to go snowboarding and there still is and um, in the Highlands of Scotland and um, if you were into skiing or snowboarding and trying to make a living from it you were a part of the community so I never really felt that. I was I was so encouraged. I was more encouraged um, by the snowboarders at that time than I was by the ski community. Not because the ski community weren't supportive. They they at that time they couldn't believe that it was possible to go and take on the world. And that's what I wanted to do. I was a natural athlete. I wanted to compete. I loved just the tr- the whole process of it. And to hang out with a group of people who who had a different attitude and said yes to everything and, come on, let's give it a shot and we'll help you, um, was so refreshing, you know, so refreshing to hear, oh, you don't, something other than you don't have enough money, you don't have enough of this, you'll never make it, it's too difficult. To hear the opposite was, like, I don't know, inspirational, I guess, so I felt very welcomed. I didn't I never felt like an outsider. Of course, I've got a fair amount of uh, jibes and jokes about having a ski style <laughs> or whatever, you know, things like that. But it was all in good jest.
0: Yeah, but well, I mean the results back to you up, because I think to start off with, you were mainly focusing on on slalom, parallel slalom on on snowboard. Uh, you know, and getting some you know good results there, but at some point there was a transition to to halfpipe to the you know the freestyle side of things. How did how did that come about? Why did you decide to you know switch?
1: Yeah, I actually started off snowboarding on soft boots, and from the beginning I did everything. <laughs> and I, yeah, I must have had a lot of energy, um, and <laughs> I I obviously could um, could do the racing bit because I knew how to race. So going fast and reading a line and you know inspecting a course and being able to do all the things that you need to do to be a good racer. I knew all of that already. I just had to learn how to control my snowboard, which definitely took a while. <laughs> had a lot of big crashes. Um, whereas the freestyle side of snowboarding was completely new and different. And I probably liked that more from the start, the expression, the kind of way you could do it your own way. I just needed to learn more about it and and then um, spend more time doing it. So even in Marybelle I, I did do the half pipe. Um and then I continued to race because 96 was two years before Nagano. So if I wanted to go into the Olympics, which was just part of the journey, you know, I dived in there two feet. I just wanted to train and and learn how to snowboard and do the whole the whole thing. So the Olympics was just part of that journey it wasn't the reason to do it and um, I went straight into world cup level and racing a snowboard and I managed to hold my own after six months on a snowboard I, I got a couple of top 20 results when I managed to get down the course <laughs> um, and um, I think the scariest thing I've ever done was a super g world cup and whistler on the men's downhill track and I think I ended up fifteenth or on the top fifteen in that race because I was so terrified. I just had to hang on <laughs> and make it to the end. <laughs> um,
0: you weren't doing you weren't doing those kind of races in soft boots, were you?
1: No, no, no. I was on proper alpine yeah. race equipment. Um, and as part of a Burton national program, I got to go and a few camps with the Burton race team which was hugely beneficial I got some really great coaching tips and through those camps I met some other racers some athletes and I ended up joining joining a French professional team it was ISF snowboarding and that was running alongside the FIS snowboarding at that time and I trained with a French ISF team Francois Bonneau he was an amazing coach one of the best coaches I've ever had totally up for it you know it's like okay this is wild you Clearly can't turn your snowboard properly, but let's try and go to the Olympics. like you know, we'll give it a crack. Um, the team were great, was some really good friends on that team. Um and I missed out by one spot to going to Nagano. Um, so the BOA don't give handback spots. So I could have gone on a handback spot, but that wasn't possible. And the French had taken me under their wing to such a level that they petitioned the BOA on my behalf. <laughs> I think they just thought it was so ridiculous that this person from the Highlands of Scotland had that's to...
0: the old the old alliance, the old alliance so, you know yeah, coming exactly to, the, like to the fore there right so you yeah. just missed out on, on Nagano which is 1998 but you know you did go to three Winter uh, Olympics you know starting with uh, Salt Lake in, in 2002 and then going on to Turin and Vancouver as well and, you know, I'm sure those were, uh, you know, amazing uh, experiences. And just to, you know, kind of underline it, you know, in terms of the World Cup as well, a couple of wins in the in the halfpipe, you're the first UK snowboarder to win a World Cup halfpipe um, and podiums uh, as well. But the Olympic results never really kind of matched uh, the World Cup results. Did that affect the funding that you were getting uh, at all? Mm.
1: Um, I think that's a really interesting question because it, uh, in framing it in that way, it, it makes the assumption that the Olympic pathway was the thing that I was um, focused and passionate about um, and excludes everything else and that definitely wasn't the case. So when I, I made the really difficult decision at the time to, to quit alpine ski racing, something I loved and um, had a dream to, to follow, to go snowboarding um, part of the reconciliation which involved grieving for my friend who'd been killed in a alpine ski downhill was never to put the competition side before the journey or the process and um, so the Olympics for me is just another part of a bigger picture and the the passion and the drive came from learning about myself, learning about my community, trying to get out the, the goods from sport if you like and that I'll I'll talk about that maybe a bit later in relation to my work now and that are far more valuable to me personally than than a medal or a badge or a uniform or, um, you know, to say I've been to an event. Not to say that the Olympics was never something I really tried hard at. If anything, um, the Olympics never worked for me because I tried too hard. I was prepared to put everything on the line. Um, and I come from an era of snowboarding where um, I pro- probably didn't have enough high level training facilities or opportunities to really nail down the most difficult tricks that I did. And by the time I was certainly um, Turin and really Vancouver, I was a very old athlete in <laughs> Vancouver, you know, I was in my early 30s. So I was carrying a lot of injuries. Um, to rain, I'd broke my ankle nine months before the Olympics really badly. I'd only been back on my snowboard for a few weeks before the Olympics. So I was up against it injury-wise. So to then try and throw down my most difficult runs um, was a big risk. But it, it's a choice I made. I chose to try and do the most difficult run because it was the Olympics. And what, what else are you going to do? It's go big or go home. Unfortunately, going home was every case in the Olympics. Before Salt Lake had ripped my shoulder and ligaments three weeks, no a month, maybe a month before the Olympics again, and was really lucky to be able to compete in Salt Lake. Had to do lots of really intensive rehab and it was just on the limit. So again, I hadn't been riding for the months in the run-up to Salt Lake and I I put everything on the line and it didn't work. Um, but, you know, do I have any regrets? No, that's just me. That's how I like to roll.
0: Yeah, well, you'll probably like this comparison, but, you know, a couple of uh, podcasts ago, I interviewed Bodie Miller and we had a similar conversation, you know, in that respect, because that's how he liked to roll. You know, he wanted to get the the enjoyment out of skiing. For him, that's what it was all about. It wasn't necessarily, you know, it obviously had a very successful uh, career. But uh, if I recall correctly, I think it was at uh, Turin. He... Went for it, though it didn't come away with what uh, America was expecting. But for him, it was about the enjoyment of the competition and doing it for his own uh, uh, pleasure. And it sounds uh, very similar uh, there. Uh, I wondered if I could actually just ask you another question. It's not really about uh, uh, you, if you don't mind, that obviously your cousin, Alan, Alan Baxter, you know, you were there in Salt Lake when he you know, won his bronze medal. And that, you know, we're, we're lucky enough that later on, you know, we move on within GB Snow Sports that we there are medals won on snow. But that would have been a groundbreaking uh, medal. And I'm guessing you were kind of there, at the, uh, you know, at, at the time. I wondered if you could give any insight into how wonderful it must have felt to start off with uh, and then what happened after that.
1: Uh yeah, I mean, it uh, still still gives me tingles up and down my spine. Um, and for me, you know, he'll, Alan will always be the winner of that bronze medal. Um, interesting that, you know, Bodie was in that race and, and uh, he came out of that race, which which um, was one of the, you know, played into Alan um, winning the bronze. Not to say that Bodie would have beat Alan, but, you know, um, I remember that was a key moment in the run up to the the, the final um, result if you like me and Alan are six months apart in age, we were more like brother and sister, certainly were when we were growing up, we did everything together and you know, we, from camping trips with my gran and grandad to our first um, years on the Kirngorm Ski Club together and sharing a happy, happy head helmet because we only had one between us mm-hmm. <laughs> so we could bash the gates when we were first allowed to bash gates, you know, all of those Formative experiences went to the same high school so to to be there when he won that bronze medal knowing what he'd gone through to get there you know from his first season driving about in a beat-up old car and that that could barely you know go from A to B never mind travel around the Alps and it's just such a huge achievement and obviously you know afterwards the celebration afterwards was, was no, was there as well so there were three of us it was a, a real close-knit thing there were eight people from Aviemore standing in the crowd and the mm-hmm. four the lads who'd gone to watch Alan were wearing kilts and you know ginger wigs with tartan bunnets you know those comedy uh, Jimmy hats you yeah. get so it just it went from the sublime to the ridiculous it got very very funny and they were all interviewed on every American tv show as you mm-hmm. can imagine Um, Peter Cornfoot who's a bit of a legend just spun all these ridiculous stories winding up the Americans of what it means to be Scottish added to the amusement and the hilarity and the absurdity of the whole experience and my one of my key memories is I don't know what early hours of the morning and I'm sitting on the couch in the apartment that they'd rented with Alan on one side and Noel on the other and you know, we're just looking at that medal, and, you know, just a really poignant moment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's best that we leave it there. I prefer that positive uh, side of things. Listen, I'll put a link into the show notes. If you don't know what happened next, you can find out. Uh, but you know one of the things i remember about alan i met him uh, you know a couple of times is that you know if funding was always an issue with him i mean you talk about the vehicle he had i remember or i seem to recall that he spent one summer you know hammering in fence posts in the in the uh, highlands in scotland because that's what he needed to do to uh, to earn money you know to get through to the next uh, uh, season for you after you know vancouver then you moved into the coaching side of things and I think uh, you know funding became a different kind of uh, issue uh, in that you know the the uh, GB snow sports was better supported through the 2014 and 2018 cycles. And I wondered how your how your role came about on the on the coaching side of things. How did you get brought into that?
1: So I've always been coaching. I coached alpine skiing the, when I jumped ship from um, alpine to um, snowboard actually for British Ski Academy. Thanks, Malcolm Erskine. So I, I I coached from a young age and coached this the local ski club when I was growing up here. Bit when I wasn't training myself, so it was a natural progression. I I actually worked for Roxy as the snow team manager and coach. So as a manager coach, and I set up the Roxy, Roxy Futures program, and a lot of the really successful um, young roxy snowboarders came through that future team program started to work more with the senior roxy athletes by 2009 2010 so when i went to vancouver i was actually coach athlete manager (laughs) which is a very very privileged position to be in and i was doing a master's degree in performance coaching at sterling university so i got to study from the inside out standing in the start gate of vancouver and which i I took that knowledge and perspective into the work with GB Park and Pipe team. So if I hadn't have had that those experiences, I don't think we would have hit the ground running with GB Park and Pipe. So when slope style and big air went in as or slope went in as an Olympic event first 2012, and um, UK Sport funded the. Um, the park and pipe program to be set up. Paddy Mortimer, who was the performance director at the time, he he got to got a group together. Pat Sharples, myself, Hamish McKnight. Pat and Hamish were working Hamish in snowboarding, Pat in skiing. I was working as a snowboard coach and manager for Roxy. And we just naturally found our strengths and I ended up more in the managerial position. And just that's the way it ended up. So we worked very closely as a three and we set up GB Park and Pipe team. Um, And it was, we were very um, explicit about taking a values-based approach to setting up the team and really promoting the learning environment, promoting the buy-in, working with the comms side to promote stories of progress um, through the process, you know, that, that whole... Um, the elements that Brody uh, that Bodie Miller speaks to, um we wanted to to really cement that into the fabric of our team and promote intrinsic motivation through everything that we were doing. The funding allowed that to to be possible and working with the team at wasn't GB Snowsport back then, but working with the team with with Dave Edwards and Paddy Mortimer, we we managed to do that really well, I think.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned a few names there. Pat Sharples is someone uh, who, you know, I haven't seen him so much in uh, in recent years, but back in the day when we were in Corse Valley, you to seen him quite a lot. And I've interviewed him on the on the podcast as well about his role within uh, all of that. But uh, it must have been nice to have had the funding there. And you mentioned about the facilities in terms of uh, training. I'm thinking about the uh, that huge airbag uh, that, you know, GB Snow Sports got to use it was quite a big uh, feature in being able to uh, help people uh, develop their skills. But what we saw going through those cycles was that first ever medal on snow from Jenny Jones in uh, Sochi in 2014. That must have been you know, a, a hugely important and satisfying moment for you, I would guess.
1: Um, so Jenny is a really good friend of mine. And, you know, it was off of the back of Jenny's existing success. Jenny and a few others, James Woods, definitely, that UK Sport were able to invest in the programme. So she had the potential to, to medal for sure before Sochi. Um, but she had a really tough time. She had lots of really unfortunate injuries in the run-up to Sochi and she had to dig really deep to get herself to the place where she could, you know, contend. So to see her, I was actually pregnant on the couch watching the TV. I wasn't allowed to go to Sochi um, uh, alongside Josie Clyde, who'd been working on our comms strategy, Josie McNamara, <laughs> sorry Josie and we were howling, bawling our eyes out um, Josie is the, my partner in crime for Chunky Knit Productions and somebody who I grew up with on the Cairngorm Ski Club um, knows Jenny very, very, very well as well so it was like her sister winning an Olympic medal and um, yeah it was one of the most probably as emotional as watching Alan win it was a very moving moment um, so, yeah, that uh, that maybe gives you a bit of a picture of how much it meant to me.
0: It was obviously such a key uh, point, that first ever Alpine medal on snow, Alan, uh, notwithstanding. And then moving through the next uh, cycle, you know, at Pyeongchang, two medals there, which were at the ski and the snowboarding uh, side of things uh, as well. Was Billy's maybe a bit more of a surprise? He hadn't had that kind of uh, level of success that Jenny had taken into, uh, you know, the Sochi Olympics?
1: maybe a surprise to everybody else I don't it was a hope for for us or for me um we don't want to speak for um uh, Hamish and Jack but I imagine they weren't they knew Billy had it in them Billy is just such a creative and inspirational person to be around you know talk about learning through play he embodies that approach to everything he does but he does it meticulously and um, his his uh, ability to process anything to do with learning skills is just beyond anything I've ever seen to you know to this day I would say, um, and just a really nice person to be around. Again, he, it was against the odds. Uh, he'd done so well already. Him and um, both him and Jamie Nichols had done really well already in Sochi to um, rise to the occasion in the the Pyeongchang Olympics and put it down when it mattered in the finals of that big Air event. Just the mental toughness to do that outstanding again couldn't couldn't happen to a nicer person
0: yeah for sure i mean i i have interviewed billy uh and izzy atkin on the uh, podcast before okay I, you know i get to, I get to meet uh a, you know billy uh around uh, ski show time and uh and i've also read his book which i said to him you know i really love that book because it's so honest you know, you get a lot of uh, kind of biographies that tend to be, you know, the, oh, how wonderful I was. But he just uh, is very honest about what you might say his flaws and the things he's done wrong. He's a he's a very lovely man, and uh, I enjoy uh, talking to him. And um, so, incredibly successful uh, times there. And I know you're still involved with, uh, you know, the GB uh, snow sports team now. I think it's a slightly different role now. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So now I'm I'm not working directly with the park and pipe team. Um, on the snowboard committee at GB GB snowsport level and I represent GB at FIS level on the park and pipe subcommittee. Um, Recently we've been doing a lot of work on the handover of the world snowboards points list from the WSF to FIS which is a a real key thing within the, the snowboard competition space. So I'm still involved in the background trying to to use my experience to make a positive difference, I guess.
0: A lot of what you're doing now, as well as being involved with that, uh, has to do with, I guess, you know, it's uh, your uh, your business that you run uh, up in Aviemore called Wandering Workshops, uh, where, well, actually, I, I was reading an article somewhere or other, and I wondered if it was a kind of response to, to lockdown and people maybe appreciating nature more during lockdown than they had previously was that an influence in in starting up wandering workshops
1: um I think it certainly played into it and um, what it did is just um I guess aligned everybody else to a view that I already had <laughs> yeah. so I've always had a deep connection with the natural environment and since I was you know really young and and um, one of my passions is just to get on my bike or put my running shoes on and get out into the hills. Um, and, I, you know, ski touring or split boarding is the same kind of experience for me. And if I'm with other people, I, I can also connect into their vibe, their understanding of the world. It helps me understand myself better, nature better. There's a real strong thing um, in the experience of um shared understanding. So Wandering Workshops is about building shared understanding, connection to self, others, nature and and doing that through narrative. So whether you build the narrative through photographs, Hannah Bailey who I work with is a photographer so she approaches building narrative through visual medium, I approach building narrative through self-understanding experiences and words and we work together to Weave a story of the experience that everybody can relate to and find meaning in both externally and internally. So it's quite a, I guess, philosophical endeavor as well. But that process of learning through doing, learning through sports, learning about yourself, how you work physically, mentally, emotionally, through your body and its senses and your relationship with others and the environment. Is something I, I took throughout my whole career. That was, that's the thing that keeps me going. So to take it into a different context and um, backcountry snow sports is perfect and share that with others just amplifies my own experience as well. So it's a lovely thing to do. So that, that current is the current that's been running alongside my competitive um, career, if you like, but has always been present. So to put it into it is our community interest company, and um, to put it into a project that we can find funding to support others who, who might not otherwise have the chance to experience that kind of approach is just um, yeah great really great and enjoyable thing to do.
0: I love the way you expressed all of that just now. I think it really sums up the connection that people who love the mountains you know have with that uh, environment. And, you know, just to clarify, you know, the wandering workshops, you know, it's evidently much more than uh, splitboarding or or ski touring. But they are, uh, you know, different sessions that you run. I'll put a link into the show notes about it. Actually, Sam Haddad, who's another local to Brighton where I live, I know she's been up there and I've talked to her about it uh, before. But I'll put a link into the show notes. It's interesting because that links into the to the next uh, area that I was interested in talking about. Because we're coming up, you know, we're recording this today on uh, the 14th of of November. Imminently coming up is the Kendall Film Festival. And you mentioned, uh, you know, Hannah Bailey, who you work with on the photography side of things with Wandering uh, Workshops. The two of you are presenting a film at the uh, film festival called Thrawn. And I had to Google that to to find out what it is. You know, my son would tell you he's a character in 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 some Star Wars program. But Thrawn means... A different type of thing if you're if you're Scottish, if you're from the Highlands, right?
1: So so thrawn's a really Scottish word. I've been describing it as a kind of virtuous struggle. And what I mean by that is it's about finding your integrity and your self-awareness um, through commitment to to something, a purpose. Um, and the purpose should have some sort of ethical relationship with life, so others respect, respect for others, respect for yourself, respect for the environment. So those themes really come into the film and um, in a zoomed out kind of way. Uh, it also is used a lot for you know people who don't give up, and um, a form of resilience, a form of being able to make the most of what you've got, all of which are quite um a thing in the highlands, you know the Highlands people, are used to making the most of what they 've got it 's a a form of tenacity if you like that you need if you live up here in the highlands
0: you know I mentioned my uh, mother before i mean she her father had a sheep farm uh, on uh, on Ben Laws and you know you, you definitely uh, had to use the 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 way I was brought up is that you make the most of everything that you, that you can. And like to me, the haggis is a representation of that because <laughs> the haggis is like using up all those spare parts that aren't going to get used uh, everywhere else. So I don't know if that counts as a as Thrawn or not, but you know, think about that family side of things. You're bringing that cine footage that you mentioned before into uh, the, the film Thrawn as well. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm just laughing you know, there. Maybe the haggis is like the Scottish, is it That the, the is a comfy, nice, comforting thing. We've got Thrawn oh, yeah. and yeah. we get haggis. Um, the, the film, the, the cine film um, that my granddad that chick shot, um, some of that is in the movie, which is just lovely. It's so, so nice to be able to showcase that. And the Thrawn film... Um, Hannah produced the film. It's amazing. It takes a, a huge arc of time from the 50s to modern day and looks at the Cairngorm community, the snow sports community and um, kind of through the lens of my life, if you like, and that that sense of time passing and the thrawn that that's developed and how that could help. Now, there's always a positive and a negative side to something like um, Thrawn. But the positives. How could we use them to imagine taking on the huge challenges that we face as humans in in uh, twenty twenty three and beyond? And um, so, yeah, that's that's the bigger theme, I
0: guess. Well, that's certainly a a global theme, uh, and it uh, makes it sound very interesting. If you can't go to the Kendall Film Festival uh, to watch it, there is it possible to to watch it after that? Will it be released anywhere?
1: it will be released it's going to be released in february as and um, directly through patagonia it's one of their main films this season and obviously it's a, cr- a call to arms to reimagine what positive future we could have and and what could we do towards the climate emergency towards all the other crisis that we are facing and um, what does that look like what do we need in terms of digging deep to Move towards better.
0: Though, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to to watching that, and that's you know really interesting. You talk about the uh, challenges there. I know you're very involved with Protect Our Winters, and we've had you know a number of their representatives, uh, Lauren, Dom, and Lindsay, all on the podcast at different points uh, uh, before. And that community, uh, you know, in the Cairngorms that you're uh, talking about. I know we talked about how you started off as a skier and you moved to snowboarding, and I think. You're still doing both. You're a skier again now because the, uh, I, the Brits restarted after quite a long gap and took place again up in Scotland uh, this year in 2023. It must have been nice competing in that again you know we started off our conversation talking about you being there in 1996 and then you're competing in the Brits again in
1: 2023. <laughs> yeah yeah I, I competed on both uh, skis and, and snowboard. I ski a lot still Um, wandering workshops I split board and I ski tour and for the last yeah, I guess 15 years I've I've been doing a little bit of both. Yeah, it's nice. I love it.
0: And you picked up some medals again uh, this year, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the banks, slalom. So fun. Um, yeah, I did. I think Kirsty beat me, though. I'll have to try and chase Kirsty down next year if I do it again. <laughs>
0: Right, you mentioned Kirsty, who I've also been lucky enough to uh, interview uh, on the podcast. Uh, you described her as a once-in-a-generation talent. Uh, obviously, she's kind of local to you, but it must be very exciting seeing her moving up through the ranks.
1: Oh, it's just unbelievably exciting. There's, you know, Kirst- between Kirsty and Mia, and there are some other young athletes coming up behind them as well. Emily Rothney on, on a snowboard uh, is definitely of note. Um, yeah, it's great. I I can't explain uh, how excited I am to see what these young women go on to do and to
0: achieve. It's brilliant. Hopefully they, they're conscious uh, that your role in the uh, development of snowboarding as far as uh, you know GB snow sports is concerned but also you know women in snowboarding as well and you, you, we didn't even cover it but you mentioned Chunky Knit Productions you know I remember the movie Drop Stitch when it first came out I can't remember what the year was now but all female snowboarder movie you know it was groundbreaking uh, you know at the time so yeah I've really enjoyed talking uh, with you Leslie and like uh, I think we could we could go on for uh, for much longer but I just want to finish off by giving you some correct congratulations because I think fairly recently you're awarded Sports Scotland Coach Developer of the Year. It doesn't surprise me to hear that because what you're talking about there is you've taken... A, a very um, methodical and intellectual approach to, you know, how you've de- developed your career and developed other people's uh, career over, you know, all of this uh, time that we've uh, covered. So, um, you know, wish you all the best uh, with the wandering workshops and the and the movie and all the other negotiations and uh, and uh, involvement with uh, GB slow sport as well. Thanks very much, Leslie.
1: Oh, thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure. And hopefully we'll see you up here um, for, yeah, wandering workshops or something in the winter.
0: Well, as I said, hopefully, Ben Laws, you know, if as long as, um, well, I'm going to come anyway. So whether there's no snow or not, we're coming up there to do that. I'm actually bringing my brother uh, is going to come with me as well. So it's not so much about, uh, although I'm going to cover it on the podcast and write an article about it, it's not so much about that. It's very much a personal thing. So that probably fits in pretty well with all of your thoughts about, you know, Thrawn and the community as well Uh, that's brilliant Leslie thanks so much
1: thank you thanks again
0: well I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Leslie as much as I enjoyed chatting with her if you did enjoy this podcast there are three things you can do to support us Uh, firstly give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Uh, secondly subscribe so you never miss an episode and thirdly book your ski hire within sport rent using the code ski podcast or just take the link in the show notes it's a guaranteed way to save money when you book your ski hire There are now 191 episodes of the Ski Podcast to catch up with. And quite astonishingly, all 190 of our previous episodes were listened to in the last week. Now, that is quite amazing. Uh, But we have so much great content, it makes sense. So just go to theskipodcast.com and have a look around. We've covered so many different topics, you'll definitely find something of interest to you. You can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at the Ski Podcast. But for now, I'd like to thank Intersport for sponsoring the show and thank Leslie for her time. Finally, listener, thank you for joining us. And until next time, goodbye.